Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And the other day, we realized, much to our chagrin, that summer, with its languid, lazy pace, is suddenly almost over. I gotta say, we're still puzzling over exactly how that happened. And as we sort it out, we're making today's show all about the passage of time. We're calling it Then and Now. And over the course of the next hour, we'll dip into the Metro Connection archives and meet a woman who's been something of a piano prodigy ever since she was seven, which, for the record, was nearly 93 years ago. We'll join a local scientist in Panama to find out what sorts of frogs used to live in the jungles there and what's being done now to prevent their rapid disappearance. And we'll visit a pilgrimage site held sacred by the Piscataway Nation of Native Americans. But first, we're going to head out to Culpeper, Virginia, to a place dedicated to preserving the past. And at this place, the present sounds a lot like this. And this. And this. It even sounds like this. Well, this line is busy. Ring off. You've got the wrong number. Well, I might have the wrong number, but I got the right party, Steve. Well, this is a party line. (laughs) actually can't play it much more than that. A defect in the cylinder makes the needle start jumping out like crazy. So we've got all these hums and buzzes and clicks, and now we've got cylinders from the early 1900s? Well, actually, 1913, this particular cylinder. Okay, cylinders from 1913. At this point, you've got to be wondering... What exactly is going on here? Well, these are just some of the sounds being made as scores of archivists and engineers, like our cylinder guy, Rob Cristarella, race to save our country's audio-visual history through preservation. And they're doing it in a half-million-square-foot facility literally built into the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Its name is kind of a mouthful. The Library of Congress Packard Campus for Audiovisual Conservation in Culpeper, Virginia. Is there a a sort of an acronym for that? We usually just refer to it as the Packard Campus. Fair enough. Mike Michon heads up the moving image section at the Packard Campus. So he knows all about those first three sounds we just heard. One, a 1915 romantic comedy shot on 28-millimeter film being transferred to more durable 35-millimeter. Two, a two-inch quad videotape of the David Susskind show being transferred to digital. And three... A three-quarter-inch videotape, in this case, early episodes of All My Children, being transferred to digital by, I kid you not, a robot. The Library of Congress Packard Campus maintains the world's largest collection of film, video, and sound. The library also houses the Copyright Office, so between the 30,000 items Packard receives for copyright each year and the numerous materials sent as donations... We have roughly uh, 1.2 million moving image items and... About over 3 million sound recordings. As a total radio nerd, I just got so excited when you said that. (laughs) That second guy, the one who made my heart go pitter-pat, is Matthew Barton. He's Packard's curator of recorded sound, like those old wax cylinders, which engineers are working to digitize. So this this black cylinder I'm holding, when does this date back to? Ooh, um, probably sometime between 1898 and 1912. Seriously? Yeah. I just started shaking when you said that. (laughs) You better let me hold it. (laughs) Okay, I seriously need to stop geeking out here. But it's hard because the Library of Congress collects and preserves all kinds of amazing sound at the Packard campus. We've got 78s, LPs, 45s. Not to mention a zillion kinds of tape, even player piano rolls. And if this next tidbit doesn't make your heart go pitter-pat, I don't know what will. The Packard campus facility... 
is actually a Cold War bunker. I am not joking. Here, Mike Michon will back me up. The original facility that was here was owned by the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, Virginia. It was built in the 1970s. And at its peak, it stored $3 billion in coin and currency, which was going to be used to restart the U.S. economy east of the Mississippi in the event of a nuclear war. See, told you I wasn't joking. Uh, And in 1997, the Packard Humanities Institute purchased that. That's Packard as in David Woodley Packard, the philanthropist son of Hewlett Packard's co-founder. With the idea of converting it for storage for the moving image and sound recording collections, along with some preservation laboratories. In July 2007, Packard donated the campus to the Library of Congress. His donation tied with Wolf Trap as the second biggest private sector gift the federal government had ever seen. The biggest is the Smithsonian Institution. And now, as a result, we have this massive, multi-storied, mostly underground labyrinth of preservation labs, recording studios, and concrete storage vaults. Okay, it's a little chilly in here. 39 degrees Fahrenheit, 30% relative humidity. But then how else are you going to preserve 124 vaults of nitrate film? Each one of these vaults holds roughly 1,500 cans of film. Now, why do we have such small vaults? Should a fire event occur, you might lose an entire vault, but you wouldn't lose your entire collection. See, nitrate film was all the rage until 1951, when cellulose acetate took over. Nitrate is highly flammable. It creates its own oxygen. So if it catches fire, not even water will put out the flames. Thus, when it comes to nitrate, fire equals bad. Film history is full of sad stories of nitrate collections that were lost because of fire. Very, very bad. A lot of Swedish film history was lost because the nitrate caught on fire was bombed during World War II. And as recently as 1978, a fire at the National Archives in Suitland, Maryland, obliterated 12 million feet of film. Because when the fire department showed up, in order to release pressure in the building, they opened up the vault doors, which allowed the fire to spread from vault to vault to vault, which is exactly what you're not supposed to do. That's sad. That event taught the Packard folks a lot about fire safety and prevention, which Michon explains after leading me into one of the studio collection vaults. We're going to go into one of our Columbia vaults here. It's nice and chilly, of course, lined with shelves of cubbies, each holding two film canisters. In the event of fire, there's a chimney to help funnel smoke and overhead water sprinklers to help... Wait, didn't we just say water can't put out a nitrate fire? So what's the point of having water sprinklers. What is the point of having water sprinklers? I'm really glad that you asked, Rebecca. (laughs) Let's say a fire event does occur. A wall of water is released that would coat all of the shelves that you see in this small vault, and it would allow the fire to sort of burn out within the cubby. So you might lose like a reel or two. But you wouldn't lose anything else in the vault. We fear fire much more than we fear water. But the other thing they fear at the Packard campus, Michonne says, is time. So many of the video and audio recordings they've collected have a shelf life. I mean, 28 millimeter film degrades. Two-inch quad videotape wears out. Cylinders get damaged. That's why it's so important to get all of this stuff cataloged and preserved. And we're not preserving it for the sake of preserving it. We want people to be able to hear and see what's gone before. Because then, Mike Michon says, not only might we figure out who we were and who we are, but maybe, just maybe, who we might become. 
You can see photos of the Packard campus and find a schedule of the free screenings they offer there on our website, metroconnection.org. You also can hear some rare original sound recordings from the collection, including Eleanor Roosevelt's radio address the night before her husband's Day of Infamy speech, and the climax and aftermath of the Joe Louis-Max Schmeling boxing rematch of June 22, 1938. Again, it's all at metroconnection.org. Our next story is also about conservation, but of the more environmental kind. Last year, environment reporter Sabri Benashore joined local researchers on a trip to Panama to document the effort to rescue some increasingly rare amphibians. And as he discovered, much of this research happening thousands of miles away actually started in our own backyard. In a darkened room in Panama's Summit Zoo, keeper Angie Estrada is about to open some very special packages. It's been a long trip for them. So we're trying to do things quick and not stress them out anymore. Wrapped inside wet balls of moss are six endangered frogs. A field team spent weeks searching for them in a mountain forest where a human-introduced fungal plague has caused mass die-offs. Okay, are you ready? So this is the first frog. I don't know what it is. Estrada carefully teases away the strands of moss until a tiny hand with four little yellow fingers appears. Is he alive? Damn it. He's not alive. Not only is this frog dead, it's not even the especially rare one she was hoping for. But it's like what we expected to happen with Kitrin. It's moving too fast. Rescued frogs and their progeny can now be found in zoos from Germany to Panama. Some are the last of their kind and exist only in captivity. Reed Harris is a professor of biology at James Madison University in Virginia. But these amphibians remain susceptible, so even if you're able to breed them in the lab, you can't really put them back into the rainforest because the chytrid fungus is still there. And while thinking about this problem and doing research in Virginia's George Washington National Forest, he noticed something in the salamanders he was looking at. The females would actually squirm through the eggs periodically. If the female or the parent deserted the nest, fungus would take over the nest fairly soon, and there would be virtually no survival of the offspring. Harris' observation eventually led to the discovery of a bacteria on the skin of the salamanders. That bacteria protected the animals against fungal attack. When I heard about that, when my colleagues and I heard about that study, we immediately got in touch with Reed and said, wow, well, maybe that could help explain what's going on out here in California, where we have these mountain yellow-legged frogs that are dying from this fungus. That is Vance Vredenberg at San Francisco State University. The yellow-legged frogs in the Sierra Nevadas were experiencing the same kinds of die-offs as in Panama. When I started working on this problem, we had 500 or so populations remaining of these frogs. We're down to less than 80 populations left. So they are just dropping like flies. But he found a few small populations of frogs that survived. And on their skin, he found the same protective bacteria. He isolated in the lab, grew broths full of it, and gave it to more frogs up in the mountains. Basically, we just capture individual frogs, and then we just give them a little uh, bacterial bath. So it looks like soup. And? And it worked. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it worked. I went up there in mid-July and saw, I think, 23 frogs. That was it, just 23 frogs. But of those 23, every single one was an experimental frog that got bacteria in 2010. Those results are encouraging for Brian Gratwick, a conservation biologist with the Smithsonian. This is the only tool that we can think of at the moment that has a lot of promise 
in allowing a frog to be reintroduced back into the wild and survive chytrid. As Gratwick speaks, he swabs a bright yellow Panamanian golden frog in a lab in Front Royal, Virginia. Graduate students at Virginia Tech sifted through 500 species of bacteria on surviving frogs from Panama looking for ones that fought chytrid. They found 50. Now they're hoping one of those will stick to the golden frog, which is believed to be extinct in the wild. I'm quite skeptical. Having seen what I've seen in the past 20 years, I can't imagine anything is going to be the miracle cure. Karen Lips is a researcher at the University of Maryland who was among the first to document die-offs. She says it's unlikely anyone will be spraying bacteria from a plane, and it's not clear if the bacteria will be passed from frog to frog in the wild, though there is some promising research in that direction. Big scale. I mean, I think I think we have to depend on Mother Nature, on evolution, and, you know, hope for the best and do everything we can to sort of stack the deck on the side of the frogs. In other words, these microbes discovered on the backs of salamanders in the Appalachian Mountains may buy amphibians around the world just a little bit of time. I'm Sabri Beneshore. see pictures of frogs getting bacterial baths, and who can resist, right? Head to our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a quick break, but in just a minute, we visit a sacred Native American site on the banks of the Potomac River. I do hope that people will come out and experience the site and open your eyes to a different way of seeing what's already here. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Today's theme is then and now, and we're playing a bunch of our favorite Metro Connection stories about how time keeps rolling along. This next story goes back centuries, millennia even, all around the Chesapeake Bay and along the Susquehanna and Potomac Rivers. So um, the site where I'm taking you is a very significant place. We're on the banks of the Ladder River now in Akakeek, Maryland, with Gabrielle Tayak. I'm a historian at the National Museum of the American Indian, and I'm a member of the Piscataway Indian Nation. A Native American tribe that historically was one of the region's most populous and powerful. The name Piscataway, did the people take their name from the land, or did the name of the land come from the people? Um, The people are so highly identified with their place that they take the name from the place. And Piscataway means where the waters blend. We're above the waters now on a boardwalk in Piscataway Park. And as you stroll over wetlands teeming with wildlife... There's a bald eagle flying right there. You guys see it? Yeah. As in most parks, you'll see all sorts of signage about the animals, the plants, the recent project to restore the shoreline. But there's very little about what the Native American 
history is. And this is really one of the most important sites on the East Coast and is in continuous practice as a pilgrimage site. But Tayak is among those fighting to change that. Because this place... It's called the Akoki Creek site, or Moyon. ...was the Piscataway's central chiefdom at the time of European contact. Though Gabriel Tayak, whose uncle is the Piscataway Indian Nation's present hereditary chief, says the settlement predated that contact. The place has been occupied for at least 11,000 years. By quite a bit. That's how far the archaeology goes back. Nowadays, all you see here basically is a big field with a sweat lodge. You can see it's made out of saplings and heavy blankets. But back then? It would have been a stockaded village. People living in Piscata, we called them witch huts that were covered in reeds that with the domed roofs and large extended families lived together in a matrilineal way. They also lived very seasonally, and this connection to the land, to the earth, is reflected in their seasonal ceremonies, all of which involve that sweat lodge, by the way. There's the midwinter ceremony in February. A long time ago, they would be in hunting camps, and so then they would want to come back together. The awakening of Mother Earth in April. Which talks about us fulfilling our original instructions to be stewards and caretakers of the earth, so Mother Earth will fulfill her responsibilities and bring things back. Then the autumnal green corn ceremony. And that gives thanks for all of the harvest and the corn coming in. And November's Feast for the Dead. To remember our ancestors and uh, let things go back into rest. Speaking of ancestors, Moyon wasn't just the Piscataway's principal village. It also was a burial ground. They're what they call ossuary burials that are hundreds to over a thousand years old all throughout the landscape. But because they've been there for so long, you won't see them. They don't look like cemeteries. Although one burial site. I'd like to take you over to the grave site. Um, So let's take a walk over there. You will see. It's next to the sweat lodge and marked by a tree. So this uh, red cedar tree we call the the tree of life. Planted by Gabriel Tayak's grandfather, Turkey Tayak, a Piscataway leader, activist, and herb doctor. Turkey Tayak planted this tree in 1976 on top of an ancient ossuary where there are hundreds of people buried below us from ancestral times. And Turkey Tayak is actually buried there too, making him the only Native American buried in a national park after its creation. But that burial didn't come easy. See, in the 1960s, Turkey supported the creation of Piscataway Park on one condition. That he could be buried here and that his people could always come here freely for cultural and spiritual purposes. He and the Secretary of the Interior shook on it. And in the 1970s, as Turkey grew ill and sensed the end drawing near, he went back to the Interior Department, but they had no record of the agreement. And um, he was really shocked because he was born in 1895, so he thought making a verbal agreement and shaking on it was enough, but they never signed anything. So Turkey began lobbying for his own burial at Moyon. When he died in 1978, his children and grandchildren took on his cause. And we were told that we would have to get an act of Congress passed in order to have him buried in a national park. They put Turkey's body in a mausoleum, but they didn't back down. Letters of support came pouring in. And finally, the act was passed in 1979, a year later, and he was buried here. Of course, what happened at that burial is another story. One Gabriel Tayak, who was 12 at the time, remembers well. It was a chilly, gray November day, she says. Sleet was streaming from the sky. And when the funeral procession reached the gravel road that leads to the park, 
The Park Service and the landowners up the road refused to let the hearse go by. And we had an act of Congress, but there was so much racial animosity down here during that time period. Things have changed. You know, things are, are better, but they did not want to comply. So Turkey's family and friends did the only thing they could. They had to hand carry the casket from all the way up the road. And since then, at every Feast of the Dead, that procession is recreated. A burial shroud is carried down the road to the tree where people hang little red bundles of tobacco on the branches, each bundle representing a loved one who's died. And when the wind blows, it carries the prayers up to the spirit world to intercede for you. So it's like a place where life and death converge, and it's not sad or creepy, you know. It's really more about making a connection back. Back to the earth, to your ancestors, to your roots. And Gabrielle Tayak says she's proud of her Piscataway roots, even if after years of disease, colonization, war, and assimilation, the tribe's numbers aren't what they used to be. Tayak's also proud of the fact that in January, Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley issued groundbreaking executive orders giving the Piscataway formal recognition as a distinct people. And Tayak says that's a huge move. And as for Moyon one day achieving more recognition, she says she feels like more and more people are coming to understand the true meaning of the place. You're not just walking on a field and it's not just a stand of trees. This is so rich with life and ancestral deep time the way you might find in the caves in France. And um, it's just a matter of changing your perspective and start to open your eyes to a different way of seeing what's already here. To see pictures of Moyon and to learn more about the Piscataway Indian Nation, visit our website, metroconnection.org. All right, let's head across the Potomac now for another story about ancestral roots. Northern Virginia resident Tim McCoy always knew his ancestors had been part of the Miami tribe of Oklahoma, but he didn't know much about their traditions. That's because many years ago, the last speaker of Miamia died. Now, McCoy is working with fellow members of the Miami tribe to revive this lost language. Jessica Gould visited the McCoy family to hear what it's like to bring a language back from the brink. On a suburban street in Fairfax County, a father is playing catch with his sons. It is a quintessentially American scene with a distinctly Native American sound. For the past four years, a scientist with the Smithsonian Institution has been teaching his children Miamia, the language of the Miami tribe of Oklahoma. My name is Tim McCoy, or I could say Kishikwa Wainswiani. McCoy's ancestors were Miami tribe members, but growing up, he says he never heard much about his family's heritage because no one had the words to describe it. The last first language speaker of Miami had died, and there was no one who knew Miami. No one even knew if there were any records of Miami. In fact, languages across the globe are disappearing all the time. Joshua Bell is part of the Recovering Voices program at the Smithsonian. 
And he says 50 to 70 percent of the world's languages will probably fade away over the next 80 years or so. And at that rate, it's about one language disappears every 14 days. Native American languages are especially at risk. 89 percent of all these languages are in danger of becoming dormant and no longer used. And Bell says that's worrisome because when a language goes, a group's history, culture, and traditions often go with it. When you lose that, it's the equivalent of taking Shakespeare's corpus out of all the libraries. For years, it seemed that might happen to Miamia, but... It didn't. Daryl Baldwin is director of the Miamia Project at Miami University in Ohio. The actual research into the language began around 1988 with a gentleman by the name of David Costa, who was in graduate school at the University of California, Berkeley. Baldwin says Costa reviewed centuries of documents in order to piece together the language. Then the tribe partnered with Miami University to promote its culture through scholarships and summer camps. But it's a healing process for this community to get back a sense of who they are and to be able to value and honor their ancestors. Now there are websites, talking dictionaries, even iPhone applications to help parents teach Miami words and traditions in their homes. And Tim McCoy says similar things are happening in tribes across the country. Linguists like to call languages like ours extinct. And as long as there's documentation out there, and as long as there's a community that's interested in that, a language is never really extinct. It's just sleeping. It's just waiting for its voice. So every day, McCoy, his wife, and his two sons sing songs in Miamia. Aya, 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 aya. Then they say a traditional poem. Even the dog answers Miamia commands. Shaha, muswa, shaha, muswa. McCoy says he just wants his children to have the chance to connect with their culture. Our kids are obviously multi-ethnic. You know, my wife has German background. My own family has Scotch-Irish background, Italian background. But as we like to say, when they get older, if they decide they want to know about their Scotch history, they can go to Scotland. If they want to know about their German history, they can go to Germany. If we don't keep Miami culture and Miami as a language alive, where will they be able to go? And Zach McCoy, who's 10, says carrying on Miami traditions makes him feel special. It's really cool because you feel different every day. But Tim McCoy says his family is actually a lot like other families in the neighborhood and throughout the region. There's a lot of bilingualism and trilingualism in the Washington, D.C. area. Many of them speak a language from Africa or a Central American language. We just happen to speak a Native American language And one day, he hopes that won't be rare at all. I'm Jessica Gould. You can learn more about the Miamia Project at Miami University and the Recovering Voices program at the Smithsonian on our website, metroconnection.org. Now, Tim McCoy's story is all about trying to revive something, in this case, a language, that has nearly disappeared. Well, our next story is about a woman who's been holding on to something tightly for 92 years. Ruth Antin started piano lessons when she was seven years old. More than nine decades later, she's hardly missed a day with her 88 keys. Emily Friedman brings us the story. Ruth Antin wakes up around three in the morning. She gets dressed, hooks her music bag on her walker, and heads downstairs. There's a room in her retirement home that has a TV, 
some chairs, and a piano. And by no later than 5 a.m., she's sitting at the piano, ready to begin. Here's some of my, my audience. Shall we wait till they come in? Three more residents stream into the room. Breakfast just finished, so this is when the concert usually begins. Hello. They all have their favorite pieces, see? That's one you know. I started, I was a little over seven. I remember the exact day. And before I knew it, I was giving uh, concerts. Everybody knew that I played the piano and they asked me to play. I played, that's all. I don't remember even being nervous about it. Antine was a child prodigy. She didn't do regular kid things like play in the street in her Brooklyn neighborhood or go grocery shopping with her mother because she was always practicing. Somebody wanted me to go on tour, and my teacher said she should not do that. It won't be in the the long run good for her to show off because they shouldn't make a big thing of being young because the idea is to know how to play well. Instead of touring, she stayed in school and performed all over New York City. By her 20s, She was one of the first women to receive a master's in conducting from Yale. She helped write books on music theory, created a program for music therapy, and all the while performed. Hundreds of performances, thousands of songs. I don't know how many, many, many things I played. Almost anything that anybody would want. My name is Elise Vinitsky, and I have an incredibly special aunt, Ruth Vinitsky Antine. Aunt Ruth, do you remember anything about the accident? No, I don't. See, I, I just know I forgot everything. Two years ago, Antine had a stroke that wiped out almost all of her repertoire. There were piles and piles of sheet music in her mind, and the notes had somehow slid off the page. Even now, it's on... An early sonata of Beethoven, the pathetic. Can't get this part, I haven't got that part. I have to practice, practice, practice. She had had a stroke before, 30 years ago, after which she was told she'd never play piano again. But she did. Now, two years after her more recent stroke, she's relearned more than two hours of music. In some ways, she says, she's better than she ever was. Every time I play, it's a real experience to me. And I think that somehow that communicates. She performs a concert every morning for anyone who wants to listen. It's an older crowd, she says. And though she introduces each song with a story and a little banter, it's pretty common to see people nodding off. Sometimes they'll applaud me and then afterward they will fall asleep. I told them if they don't fall asleep, they get their money back. So that really means that It's okay to fall asleep. Ruth's niece, Elise, says after the stroke, Aunt Ruth doesn't get all the notes right. But she says that's not really what it's all about. Do you remember the story about Leopold Godofsky? A woman came up to Leopold Godofsky after a concert and said, How can you play the piano with such small hands? 
And he said, what makes you think we play with our hands? Ruth says even after 92 years playing, there's always something to learn, something to practice. And if you're lucky, there's always someone to hear you play. I'm Emily Friedman. To see photos of Ruth Ann Teen at the piano, head to our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, demonstrating the past and present of video games. My greatest hope is that everyone that comes to visit this walks away with a greater understanding that video games are more than they believed them to be when they came in. It's coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're dipping into the Metro Connection archives and zipping around between the past and the present with a show we're calling Then and Now. We'll kick off this segment by heading back to an era I know I remember fondly. And uh, here's a hint. By any chance, does this sound familiar? How about this? Or maybe this? Hearing that music takes me back. It sure does. (laughs) Although not that far back, right? Well, how you choose to answer that particular question, posed here by video game developer, collector, and all-around whiz Chris Melisinas, depends on how far back you think 1985 is. That was the year Nintendo released the now-iconic video game Super Mario Brothers. In case you haven't guessed, the other two themes you heard just now belong to Pac-Man, a classic that takes us all the way back to 1980, and Myst. an adventure game initially released in 1993. They're among five games you can actually play on supersized screens in the Smithsonian American Art Museum's new exhibit, The Art of Video Games. And these games were selected because they did something unique within their era or they changed the way developers worked or uh, the types of games they created. Melisinas curated the exhibit, which features a total of 80 video games, mostly from his personal collection, and covers a span of 40 years. Here's the thing, though. He isn't trying to show the artistry of video games to visitors. I think initially they expect to come in and see, as we do have up in here, some beautiful pictures of the gameplay. What Melisinas is trying to do is focus on... The entirety of video games as an art medium. So in that sense, it's one very first exhibitions to tackle video games and art in that manner. Because the way Melisinas sees it, video games represent a beautiful fusion of all forms of art, be it painting or sculpture or even music and narrative. So in that, video games provide the greatest variety, the greatest opportunity to tell the widest breadth of story, the widest narrative of any other medium that we have at our disposal today. But the key to making this particular medium work, he says, is interaction. Because it doesn't become art until the game is actually played. A point that's strikingly demonstrated by one of the first installations you encounter when you enter the exhibit. I'm really intrigued. Over here, I'm looking at three side-by-side screens showing pictures of people. Actually, no, they're moving. 
So these are people being filmed, let me guess, as they're playing video games? Correct. So this piece is called Gamer Faces. And the idea was we set up a high-definition camera and focused on people as they played in a room by themselves. The people include males and females of all ages, shot mainly from the shoulders up. Some stare intently. Others talk to themselves or back to the game. This one boy keeps jumping up and down. You don't see people react this way when they read a book, view a painting, even watch a movie. You may get people to jump at certain points. You may get people to cry at certain points. But you do not see this full kind of release of themselves. And this release has been going on since the days of the Atari VCS. A lot of people know it as the Atari 2600. That is not its original name. It's the video computer system. And it's on display in another room of the exhibit, which shows the evolution of video games through 20 gaming systems. From early elementary offerings like the Atari and ColecoVision... It looks so familiar over here on the Commodore 64, that top one with the ladders. Jumpman. Jumpman. To more recent complex innovations like the Wii and PS2. And since the gaming systems snake along the four walls of the room, by the time you reach the PS2, it actually is right next to our very first gaming system. Exactly. And so by standing in that one corner of the room, you're able to see just how far we have come in the medium of art that is video games. But what you're also able to see, Melisinus says, are the echoes of design that started at the Atari VCS and are even present today in the era of the PlayStation 3. Such as? Well, in Uncharted 2, when we see Nathan Drake in a jungle environment reaching for a vine and we see Pitfall Harry on the Atari VCS in a jungle scene reaching for a vine, we realize that those core mechanics have persisted for 40 years. What has changed, he says, is the platform, or more fittingly for an exhibit titled The Art of Video Games. The canvas, the brushes that artists have had to paint the environment in which those mechanics occur. Now, of course, Chris Melisinus knows not everyone would be quite so keen to whip out such artistic metaphors for video games. What would you say to the parents who say, I don't want my kids playing video games. I want them out playing, you know, with real people in the fresh air. What I would say is to not be dismissive of them on the face. Chances are many parents that are listening remember a time when video games were important to them. The ones that grew up in the 70s and 80s, and they remember the first time they saw Pac-Man or the first time they played Pitfall or Donkey Kong. And understand that the games their kids are playing today are just the descendants of the games that we grew up on. Playing games is part of what it means to be human. It's how we find competition. It's how we find cooperation. And it's how we find creativity. Or so says Atari founder Nolan Bushnell, a video game hero who has a quotation stenciled on one of the exhibit's walls. Can you read it? Sure. It's video games foster the mind that allows creativity to grow. you agree with that? Absolutely. And it's Chris Melisinus' ardent desire that by the time people exit the exhibit, whether they're diehard gamers or not, they'll agree too. I hope that everyone that comes to visit this walks away with a greater understanding that video games are more than they believe them to be when they came in. Because they are. Because they are. You can catch the art of video games at the Smithsonian American Art Museum through September 30th. Now, 
If you've spent a fair bit of time playing video games, you may have tried one of those high-speed racing games. You know, the ones where you whiz around the Indianapolis Speedway or some other track at speeds of like 120 miles an hour. Well, in the real world, 120 miles an hour is actually not unheard of when it comes to illegal drag racing. And that's the topic of our weekly transportation segment from A to B. Back in 2008... Eight people lost their lives during a drag race in Prince George's County, Maryland. This past March, Martin DeCaro returned to the crash scene to find out what's been done in recent years to slow drivers down. A bouquet of flowers, a small American flag, and a white cross are planted in the grass median of this four-lane highway. But residents along Route 210 in Akakik don't need to see a roadside memorial to remember what happened here four years ago. It was unforgettable. A large crowd had gathered late on a February night to watch a drag race on the highway. Eight people were killed when a car plowed into the spectators. It affected me greatly because of the business that we have. The police cut off my driveway and customers could not get down. Customers were turned away. Marilyn Randall owns a kennel nearby. She's also a member of the Greater Akakik Civic Association. I'm sorry that they died, but why were they doing it? You don't have to travel far to get the answer to that question. At a nearby high-performance auto parts store, shelves are loaded with shiny parts and expensive products made for one thing, the addiction to speed. Video monitors play an endless loop of race cars, burning rubber and blasting clouds of exhaust. It's excitement. I guess it's no different than being somebody you see on TV like the running of the bowls. It's just the excitement of being there. It's the, I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that it's not legal. That fellow is the manager here, and he asked that his name and the name of his business not be used on the radio because he didn't want to be identified with an illegal activity, one in which he used to participate. It was a thrill. It's an adrenaline rush. It's, it's excitement. That's what it is. It's strictly about the excitement. What made you stop? Uh, You get older, you get responsibilities, you get families, you get things you can start losing if you get caught. I mean, it's not like it used to be. Police used to come out and tell you to go away. Now they'll take your car. He says a lot of his customers race their cars legally at the Bud's Creek track in Mechanicsville, but he knows he probably sells parts to customers who race on public roads. In fact, he knew all eight victims from the 2008 incident as customers in his store. But he says he's not responsible for what customers do with their products, and it's hard for him to really criticize drag racing, even after what happened on Route 210. Go on the Beltway at 5 o'clock tonight. Go up Route 5. Go down route, Go down um, Indian Head Highway on a Saturday. I've had motorcycles pass me at 130. I mean, everybody around this entire area drives like that constantly. Before the tragedy on Route 210, he says there were drag races almost every night of the week in the county. But that has changed. I don't hear of any more racing around here. You actually have to go north of here, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, to street race anymore. I mean, I'm sure there's some going on around here, but not like it was before. Not every weekend, three or four different spots. What happened? Uh, I think people were just scared. They knew a lot of people that got hurt, and they don't want to be involved in it anymore. Plus, they know the police around here are cracking down on it. Police say aggressive driving, drag racing included, is still a big problem here. Prince George's County Police Major James Harper drove me to the scene of the 2008 drag racing deaths. This stretch of road is a flat straightaway. Turn around, heading back northbound on uh, Indian Head Highway. So I can see why this would be enticing. There are no other traffic lights. There's, there's no speed humps. 
Major Harper says police efforts have reduced but not eliminated this dangerous illegal behavior. You might hear from some of the residents that, you know, there's been a decline, but we've used variable message boards to put messages. We've used the traditional methods of uh, speed enforcement, writing citations, but also just the presence, just the presence here. The county police also partner with the Maryland State Police on aggressive driving patrols. State Police Lieutenant Roland Butler at the Forestville Barracks says government grants pay for additional patrolling that target the most dangerous drivers. Really, we try to concentrate on that with somewhere between two to four troopers or officers out there patrolling the roadways, looking for those groups congregating in areas that are just totally unusual. Law enforcement efforts may make a difference with ordinary law-abiding citizens, but our reform drag racer says if the risk of death in a high-speed crash doesn't stop someone, getting a ticket or even losing a driver's license may not be a deterrent either. I mean, if you went back to Henry Ford's plan when the first two Model Ts rolled out, the two guys leaving that factory raced them out of the factory. It's just the nature of men in vehicles. Drag racers aren't the only ones who pay the price for their high-speed driving. The people who share the roads with them say they're at risk, too. One resident here used to call this stretch of Route 210 the Indianapolis Speedway. I'm Martin DeCaro. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Cherrydale in Arlington, Virginia, and Northeast D.C.'s Michigan Park. I'm Roxanne Carter, native Washingtonian, living in Michigan Park area. Michigan Park is really located from Otis Street Northeast around toward the Brooklyn Metro Station to Allison, crosses over to 18th off of um, South Dakota. Basically, from one block to the next, the houses are so different and unique. You have a large backyard, you have tree-lined streets, the parks around, you have the monastery, a lot of unique places around, especially Catholic institutions. What I can remember about playing as a child around here was every yard had some fruit trees. I mean, you had peaches, pears, apples, people had grapevines. It wasn't always African-American. When we moved here, I guess I would consider it kind of being diverse because it was starting to change, and so blacks were then able to buy homes. It went through its transition where basically, I guess probably about the 80s or 90s, you had more African-Americans, and now you see it changing, going you know, a little more diverse, or going back to like it was when we moved over here in the 60s. My name is Maureen Ross. I'm the president of the Cherrydale Citizens Association uh, in North Arlington, and I have lived here since 1987. Cherrydale starts at I-66 on-ramp for going west near Kenmore Street on Longley Highway and stretches up to North Utah Street. We have people still in Cherrydale whose descendants are from the 1700s, and we had the oldest volunteer fire department in Arlington. Uh, I think the first desegregated fire department as well. 
We have lovely bungalows, and we have a lot of front porches. It's a, a sweet little neighborhood. Each house looks different. We don't have cookie-cutter houses. Our listserv is wonderful. During a huge snowstorm, uh, a neighbor put out on the listserv that she couldn't get out uh, of the street to get her husband to dialysis, and a bunch of us immediately got involved. Between uh, shoveling and getting the county involved, we, we got him to dialysis. Cherrydale is like a small, cute little neighborhood, yet we're right here in Arlington and we're a stone's throw from the capital. You can go see anything and then come home to your own quiet little neighborhood and not be in traffic. It's just a nice little spot. We heard from Roxanne Carter in Michigan Park and Maureen Ross in Cherrydale. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Friedman, Sabri Benashore, Jessica Gould, and Martin DeCaro. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rafaela Benin. John McCone, Lauren Landau, and Rafaela Benin produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you happen to miss part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we bring you a brand spanking new show all about power. We'll ponder whether political position really is the key to dominance in the district and head to Prince George's County to see what happens when you're culturally in the majority but politically in the minority. Plus, a new play ponders the great power and great responsibility of being a real-life superhero. This play is really asking a lot of very complicated psychological questions underneath the butt-kicking in spandex. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.